This is a reading from the Gospel of Luke. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Maybe Satan. If you knew that tonight was the last night of your life, that you were facing death, that death was intimate, that you were going to die, what would you say to your family? What would you say to your closest friends, your confidants? What would be sort of your last words or instructions? You know, for those of us in here who have had family members who've gone through hospice care and knew that they were going to die and die very soon, those are very powerful and poignant memories for us, aren't they? We remember every word. We remember every syllable. We remember every instruction. They're just sort of imprinted, aren't they, indelibly in our minds. We need to think about that when we put ourselves tonight in the place of the disciples, when they are gathered with Jesus around the table for that Last Supper. They have spent three years with Jesus, and Jesus is going to be gone soon. Now, now, they don't know that. They should have known that, but they don't know that. But Jesus sure does. And Jesus knows that even though he's going to, to rise from the grave only a few days later, he knows that what will be said here around that table this night will stick indelibly in their minds forever. He knows that for the disciples, it will provide a pattern for both them, for the church, and here we are 2,000 years later gathering around these tables doing the same thing. And we might imagine... Jesus, what would, what would you take the opportunity to say? 
You know, for yourself, you might have a, a, certain, a certain memory, a certain instruction, a certain exhortation, a certain last wish. And there's lots of things we know that Jesus could have said to his disciples right at this moment. He could have talked about evangelism or how to survive in a hostile culture after he's gone. He could have gone really boring and talked church polity and organization or anything, the how-tos of the church. And by the way, he does address those things later, but not tonight. Not tonight for the last time that he is going to be gathered with his disciples before he goes to the cross. Instead, Jesus has something else in mind. He wants to rivet their attention, not on all the how questions, but instead on the who question. And when we understand the who, then we'll understand the what Jesus is asking us to do here. I think Luke wants us to see, and we're just going to spend a couple of minutes meditating on each of these. Luke, I think, wants us to see two things. That Jesus here is the sovereign, and that Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus as sovereign. You know, one of the things that captures our attention when it comes to Holy Week is the seemingly tragic nature of the last week of Jesus' life. Not only is there the, the bitter personal betrayal that we see here with Judas in the passage that we just read, but if you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you know there is just a whole host of injustices taking place this last week of his life that just sort of leave us throwing our hands up in the air. You know, Jewish leaders seeking to murder him unjustly for no other reason that they just did not like him. They, they held him in, in, in malice and spite and jealousy. We think about the, the way that Jesus was arrested in the dead of night, hauled off to stand before the high priest, all direct violations, by the way, of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law, these same leaders were so ostensibly set on keeping. Jesus was abandoned by his inner ring, his inner ring of friends that he had never abandoned, even among the worst times of their life, but they abandoned him. We think about that, the fact that Jesus was murderously tortured by the Romans, even though he had violated not a single civil law. Then, of course, the crowds choosing a real murderer, Barabbas, over Jesus when they asked the crowds who they wanted to be freed. Now, it's tempting for us to look at these last events, this last week of Jesus, this last night before Jesus goes to the cross, and really come to the conclusion that what we have here is just really a, the ultimate of divine tragedies, that a, that a tragic mistake has been made by mankind, and that God somehow takes this tragic mistake and, and turns it on its head for good, to teach us something. And so in, in this way of thinking, it's, it's real easy for the death of Jesus to, to simply be a model for us. And it goes like this, you know, Jesus suffered unjustly. Well, you and I should suffer unjustly, right? Or Jesus embodies love and forgiveness. 
towards his enemies? Doesn't he not say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? So you and I should do the same. Jesus doesn't retaliate. So likewise, Christian, you don't retaliate. Now understand, while there is truth in all of those statements, they fall far short of the main point that Luke wants to communicate to us in this passage. The main point is that Jesus dying upon a cross, Christian, was nothing if it was not 100% intentional. Jesus dying on the cross was nothing if it was not controlled and directed by Jesus Christ himself from start to finish. He knew what he was doing. He had not made a tragic mistake. This was not a divine tragedy. Jesus shows himself to be the sovereign in every way. Look, look back at the text. Just for, we're going to spend a minute on this. The fact that Jesus was even going into the city, Jerusalem, that was a big deal. Even the disciples, dense as they were, knew this. They were, the leaders were fit to be tied. They, they feared Jesus might be killed and they along with him. But yet, Jesus plows on, Luke 9 tells us, like flint on the way to Jerusalem. Not only that, but he gets to the city, outside the city, and he asks Peter and John here to go and make preparations. See, they need to get everything just so. To fix the room and the meal and to get the donkey and to order all the arrangements Jesus has a very clear plan here. Even as they're sitting around the table and Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him, what a great time, we would think, wouldn't it, to thwart that plot? <laughs> what a great... If I, were, if I were Jesus, I would not have dismissed Judas, would you? We would have sent a chaperone along with Judas. But no, no, Jesus dismisses him. And in fact, doesn't mobilize any sort of resistance whatsoever, just continues on with the meal. And you know what? If this is confounding to us, it shouldn't be because it's perfectly consistent with everything else we've read in the Gospels. Here's just a couple examples. Luke 9.51, I just mentioned this. When the days drew near for him to be taken up in order to go to Jerusalem and to be killed, what happens? He set his face the Greek, like flint, to go to Jerusalem. Matthew 16, 20 through 21. From that time, be, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. John 10, we'll get to this passage some years hence on Sunday mornings here. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. See, Four Oaks, Christian, the death of Christ was no tragic accident. It was no cosmic plan that went awry. This was not helpless Jesus 
passively submitting himself to the forces of evil all around him. And yes, there were evil forces all around him, secondary forces, factors. Satan himself who filled Judas. You see, the tragedy of Good Friday is not that Jesus died. The tragedy of Good Friday is that Jesus had to die in our place for our sin, for our wretchedness. You see, our sin is the true tragedy. So we don't merely mourn over the death of Jesus tonight as we come to his table. We most fundamentally mourn over what put him there. But putting him there, Jesus' face as the sovereign was set to go to Jerusalem to lay down his life not a second sooner, not a second later, but when he determined that it would be for you and for me. Jesus the sovereign was also Jesus the sacrifice. Look back at the text in verse 7. It says it's the day of unleavened bread being celebrated all across Israel. And of course, this is the feast of the Passover where where Jews all across Jerusalem and Palestine would, would gather in their homes and other places and they would celebrate the Passover meal. And we know that this was when, when, when lambs were, as Luke tells us, slaughtered and eaten all across Israel to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt. This was an annual feast. And, and what they were remembering, and if you remember your Bible history a little bit, you know that when God prepared to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, he told the Israelites, I'm going to come to Egypt tonight and I'm going to kill the firstborn of every living creature. So Israel, here's what I want you to do. I want you to slaughter a lamb. I want you to spread that blood across the doorframe so that when the angel of death would pass over, you will be protected by that blood and what it symbolizes. And when, and, when is, and when Israel did this and celebrated it again for the next four, 800, 1,200 years, two things were indelibly in their mind when they did this every year. First, deliverance from judgment can only come through death. Folks, did you know that? Deliverance from judgment can only come from someone's death. And the second thing is this. This death, though, could take the form of an innocent substitute. There had to be a death to escape from judgment. But that death could take the form of an innocent substitute. So here is the lamb, the Passover lamb, symbolizing the fact that Israel was as a sinful, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people covered forgiven by the grace of God, symbolized by this blood. And so here on the night where the Passover is being celebrated all over Israel, where lambs are being sacrificed, it's pretty clear, isn't it, what Jesus is saying? Their body 
Jesus says, it's my body. Here's the lamb, but I am the lamb. This lamb was innocent, and I am innocent. This lamb is going to receive your judgment. I am going to receive your judgment. You know, some, even among the church, recoil at this idea of Jesus being a bloody sacrifice. That this is somehow primitive and pagan and violent and and uncouth for civilized people and shows this wrathful, hateful God. Isn't this, Pastor Paul, antithetical to Jesus' love and forgiveness? Surely there can be nothing redemptive about a sacrifice. You know, the gospel writers in Luke, they don't exactly give us a complex calculus equation to figure out what's going on here, do they? This isn't even paint-by-numbers level of difficulty. This is more like solving the maze on the back of the kid's menu at Red Elephant, isn't it? (laughs) It's that clear. Jesus is saying, this is my body. This is my blood. And I want you to spend the rest of human history gathered as my people, making it the central focus and act of your worship. Folks, he, he could have said anything. He could have communicated anything. But he gave the disciples, he gave us bread. He gave us wine or juice. He, he spent this last meal giving to the disciples the symbols that they would carry with them for the next two millennia that would continually remind them and remind us of how central the body and blood of Jesus Christ is. It's not primitive, or it is primitive, but sin is primitive too. See, make make no mistake, without the body and blood of Jesus, there is no gospel. There is no salvation. There is no forgiveness. There is no atonement. There is no reconciliation. You and I are lost in our sins. And we lose the metaphor of the body and the blood of Christ. When we lose that truth of Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slaughtered, we lose our faith. We lose our hope. We lose our assurance. So to encourage our hearts, Christians, Jesus says, when you gather, do this thing. There's nothing magical in these elements, but boy, are they not powerful symbols that when we come to the table, we are are taking on the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. We're reminding ourselves that his death is at the heart of our faith. And we are going to be doing this until Jesus returns. And one day, he will celebrate it with us. But it won't be the Passover. It'll be his supper. It'll be the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we will praise him forever. So we have to be reminded. Folks, because 
this is such an important, momentous thing that happens in the life of the church. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a unique and different way tonight. In just a second, the worship team is going to come back up, and for about 20 or 25 minutes, Josh and team are just going to lead us through um, a number of songs and corporate worship. And during this time, you need to pursue the Lord as you feel led to, whether that's standing and singing or sitting and singing or kneeling or praying or thinking or meditating or pondering or all of the above at different times, what have you. And at some point in this 20 minutes that we have together, come and take communion on your own, on your own time, whenever you are ready, just to one of the tables that's near you. You can come alone. Families, you can come as a family. Community groups can come as community groups. Come with your friends. And when you come, we're not going to take it all together. We're going we're to do a method we used to do called intinction, where you come and you simply break off a piece of the bread and you dip it into the juice, and you take it there at the table, and then you can return to your seats. Parents, I realize, let me just assure you, parents, this is not your worst nightmare, okay? This, this is a wonderful opportunity. Parents, use this opportunity to explain to your children what in the world is going on. Why do we come to this table? Why do we eat this bread? Why do we drink this juice? What... How, how bizarre, how strange. But yes, but yet yeah, we, we worship the lamb who was slain. So, so parents, use your own discretion about whether your children take the Lord's Supper or not. That's completely in your hands to figure out. Folks, you don't all have to come at once. If you all come at once, we can't do it all at once. But come as the Lord leads When we read Isaiah 53 and sing the power of the cross, you'll know that we are winding up our time and that you might want to come on if you're going to take the Lord's Supper tonight. I'm going to invite our leaders now to come and man their place at the table. I'm going to invite our worship team back up here. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and meditate again on these words and their significance. Close your eyes. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Lord Jesus, we are not here tonight celebrating a tragic, divine mistake. Lord, you set your face as flint. Lord, you were the sovereign over your own death and you laid it down at just the right time, a sacrifice, a propitiation for us. Lord, if there, if there are those here who are horrified 
by this idea of ritual and sacrifice and, and blood. Lord, remind them, remind all of us how horrific is the nature of sin. How, how that is our, our rightful locus for mourning. But Lord, knowing that as we confess our sins, as we come to your table, you forgive us our sins. You cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of Jesus, the Passover lamb. Lord, it's in his name that we come to the table. Amen.